Welcome to the Health Humanities Podcast. Our mission is to facilitate interdisciplinary thinking and creative work related to illness, caregiving, and medicine. I'm Elizabeth Coletti, the Editor-in-Chief of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill, and this episode we'll hear from Megan Schwartzfager, who's a master's student in the Literature, Medicine, and Culture program. We'll start with hearing her read her personal narrative, We All Have Headaches, Sweetie. We hope you enjoy. We all have headaches, sweetie. If migraine patients have a common and legitimate second complaint besides their migraines, it is that they have not been listened to by physicians. Looked at, investigated, drugged, charged, but not listened to. Oliver Sacks, migraine. My first migraine hit me like a bus during my 10th grade theater class. I must be coming down with the flu or something. Nothing but severe viral infection could explain the pain in my head. Explosive at first, then throbbing and all-consuming, sucking sensation out of the rest of my body, or the sudden intense nausea I felt. By the end of the school day, I knew nothing but pain. A pop quiz that day would likely have gone completely unanswered. I couldn't remember if I had eaten lunch. I hadn't. I found my bagged peanut butter sandwich squished at the bottom of my backpack that evening, or what my homework was, or which friend I was supposed to meet for tacos that weekend, or if it was actually Italian food we would be eating. Fortunately, I was only 15 years old and therefore not expected to drive myself or my four younger siblings to and from school. I don't know if I could have fit a key into the ignition of a car, and I certainly know that I shouldn't have. I rode in silence in the passenger seat of my dad's car and took my temperature as soon as I got home. No fever. What's wrong with me? I thought I must have been dying. As incomprehensible as my nascent chronic migraine was to me that first day, I had no idea that this pain would also be illegible to friends and doctors alike. I grew up, as many children do, only being allowed to stay home from school if I had a fever. So for three days of migraines, for which I did not yet have a name, I persevered. When I finally explained my pain to my mom, a former migrainer herself, She made an appointment with a local nurse practitioner who diagnosed me vaguely with chronic headaches and wrote a prescription for gabapentin, an anticonvulsant used to treat postherpetic neuralgia, a complication of shingles, and off-label to treat neuropathic pain and a host of other issues from anxiety disorders to alcohol withdrawal. Though I noticed some reduction in pain that I would later be told was occipital neuralgia caused by inflammation of the nerves in the scalp, my migraines were as fierce as ever. When I showed up at school complaining to friends of what I believed was a migraine, I was told that if I really had a migraine, I wouldn't be functional enough to go to school. I had worked hard to push through pain that, to me, was more real than anything else. My healthcare provider had done what she thought was best. I was sure that if it wasn't working, it must somehow be my fault. Not wanting to be a bad patient, I had to deal with the pain, so I did. Hearing doubt from people I cared about, however, made me question if my pain was real at all. Maybe everyone feels like this. Maybe I'm making this up. If the medication isn't working, maybe the pain is all in my head in more ways than one. Eventually, I would see a neurologist who, after CT scans and blood tests to rule out a variety of potentially life-threatening pathologies, diagnosed me with chronic migraine. He told me to try yoga and stop drinking coffee. I did not believe these interventions would work, and perhaps that's why they didn't, but I tried them anyway. 
I did not seek medical help again until my sophomore year of college when my life was covered over with the fog of migraine. There were days when I felt better than others, but there were almost no days when my head did not really hurt. I slept little, ate less, and struggled to sit through my classes. After a particularly grueling day in which I had to leave class to sit in a dark bathroom and gather strength to make it until the end of the day, I decided I needed a doctor. I skipped class and made an appointment with student health. To my pleasant surprise, the doctor who saw me had previously worked in a neurology clinic. I was certain this woman would finally understand and validate my pain. I have headaches sometimes too, sweetie. It's just something we all have to deal with, she said before I left her office, with no recommendations for treatment and a fire in my stomach. I knew this pain in a way that was more real than anything else in my life. Why couldn't anyone else see that I was suffering? Another trip to a neurologist, and I had a prescription for a newly approved migraine prevention medication, a monthly injection that I administered myself in panting breaths and cold sweats due to my fear of needles, once a month. It worked beyond my wildest dreams. My near-daily debilitating migraines were reduced to a few moderate bouts per month. The medication was free for a year. Then I learned that it would cost several thousands of dollars for the next year, even with my insurance. I went cold turkey, and the fear was almost as debilitating as the migraines themselves. My migraines were never as frequent as they were before this medication, but for many months, I panicked every time my vision blurred momentarily or I smelled something I wasn't sure was really there, both previously signs that I would soon be bedridden by a migraine that could last multiple days. I have migraines occasionally now, one or two a month, just enough to remind me that I haven't escaped the invisible illness that has followed me my whole adult life an illness to which no one but me can bear full witness. My chronic migraine is woven into the fiber of my being. It has made me a critical asker of many questions when it comes to biomedicine, as I now want evidence that interventions will work. It has made me more empathetic, gentler, and more sensitive to the pain of others. But my new relative absence of pain brings with it the same uncertainty and doubt that I saw and heard on the faces and in the voices of friends and doctors for years. Now I wonder, were they ever really that bad? Did I dream my migraines to disguise other pains? Am I a liar? You can read that personal narrative and the rest of the fall issue on our website. Thank you so much for presenting it, Megan. Thanks for coming to talk with me. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. This essay was really one of my favorites from the fall issue because of how vividly it tells your narrative with this condition over a length of time. So we feel not only the impact, but also the frustration that comes with a chronic illness. First, I have to get this out of the way. Is this based entirely on your own experience? Yes, it is. And then what made you want to share it in this format? Part of what it was was just that I had been dealing with it for so long. And so much of my frustration was rooted in the fact that it's hard to make people understand. And when I wrote this piece, I'd been doing some readings that kind of related to the illegibility of pain, especially Elaine Scarry's The Body in Pain, um, which is a really wonderful book. Um, She's a really, really interesting scholar, and she writes a lot about how pain is this kind of intangible, (laughs) which is funny just because it's so tangible to the person experiencing it. But there's there's no way in language to kind of make it clear. So I really wanted to explore that frustration because um, I know that even here I couldn't 
quite get my pain across, but I could at least convey, I think, some of the emotional pain that comes with it. I love that you said that because I had I had this quote that I pulled out and wanted to ask you about. At the end of the story of your first migraine, you write, as incomprehensible as my nascent chronic migraine was to me that first day, I had no idea that this pain would also be illegible to friends and doctors alike. It was really that word illegible there that you just used again was really interesting to me because it is a bit of a, of a non-standard usage, but also starts to get at the specific way that you felt a barrier in communication when dealing with your migraines. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, so I remember fighting really hard to keep that word illegible during the editing process. <laughs> um, and kind of the reason that it was so important to me was I had been taking some health humanities courses and kind of thinking about reading the body and just how so much of what we do every day is looking at people and kind of seeing how they move, what's on their faces and that kind of thing. And I really do think of it as a kind of reading, but I think it's also coded and varies so much from person to person. And with something as intense and indescribable as pain, there's really not a good common language for conveying or understanding it. Yeah. We're pulling back the curtain on our editorial process a little bit. I, I like it. Um, <laughs> one other thing that we did talk about in the edit was another detail in this piece that I really enjoy is the epigraph at the beginning, that quote from Dr. Oliver Sacks. So where did you come across that quote? And are there any other specific books? Um, you just mentioned The Body in Pain, but other books or essays that you've read that talk about this question of listening to patients? So Oliver Sacks I actually read a good bit of as an undergrad, partially because I was taking some coursework in communication and speech disorders. So we read his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, and I was really interested in him. And I think his perspective on migraines is really interesting because he suffered from them himself, but also treated them as a doctor. I think that's kind of a rare window from a doctor into the fact that Doctors can be a source of a lot of frustration and pain when it comes mm -hmm. to chronic illnesses. As far as other books go, The Body in Pain by Elaine Scarry is a really good kind of theoretical text for making sense of pain. I actually haven't read that much on migraines. I know Stephen King is a migrainer. Every once in a while, you'll get a character of his who has migraines and it's always interesting to see how he describes them. That is interesting to see health humanities things pop up in fiction and not just essays. Actually, you saying health humanities jogged my memory. Rita Sharon, I think, also has some interesting stuff just on narrative medicine that's not specifically with migraines or even with chronic pain, but kind of deals with that issue of breaching that communicative barrier between doctor and patient. It kind of is the essential problem that I guess the health humanities are trying to tackle is how do we talk about this? How do we communicate it when it is so difficult to because it's such a personal experience? Going along with that, I also really love the moment at the end where you step back to comment on how your experience as a patient has influenced your view kind of on the other side of the caregiver equation. I'd love to hear if you have any specific stories about this change to your perspective. I think it kind of stems from the interventions that were prescribed to me. The first of them was this drug called gabapentin, which is not proven to be effective in migraine treatment. Um, so that was really frustrating once I did some reading and really learned about it. Mm -hmm. And then obviously the 
stop drinking coffee and do yoga um which both That's so infuriating you can like absolutely. feel the frustration through the page um I'm glad it comes across because I still feel it but I'm I'm sure both of those things would be good for my overall health um, yeah. but they didn't do anything for my migraines and um kind of once I got here to UNC I took a class called evidence-based medicine through the library sciences program at the same time that I was taking a class in the med school. So I was really learning how to use PubMed and read medical research articles. Mm -hmm. So now I'm kind of the person who, if someone mentions going to the doctor for something, I'm on PubMed looking up the efficacy of interventions. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So my mom is is a healthcare worker. And so a lot of the time, even with things that aren't relevant to to how she cares for patients. She'll kind of bring home to me at the end of the day and ask me questions because she knows that I'll be on the computer looking them up and looking for answers that I think are more satisfying than kind of the anecdotal, well, this 80-year-old doctor says that's what we should do. So that's that's what a lot of it is. I think it's really just a more severe case of the WebMD issue um but hopefully a little less problematic I absolutely agree being able to empathize with others especially as a caregiver is such an important skill to cultivate especially as so many people as patients but also more broadly do doubt themselves when coming up against resistance you talk about thinking how maybe everybody feels like this maybe it's all in your head how have you fought to overcome that self-doubt and Maybe have you felt it in other areas of your life as well? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So I don't struggle with it quite as much with migraines anymore, partly because I have a really supportive partner, partially because I kind of have seen that medication does work. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think if that were pure placebo, then the gabapentin I was prescribed also would have made my migraines go away. Um, so I'm I'm pretty convinced that it was the drug acting on my body that made me feel better. And I think just kind of being convinced of that biological etiology makes it a lot easier to validate yourself and a lot easier for other people to validate you. It's something I've also struggled a lot with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. I um, <laughs> was kind of in sixth grade and would would throw up. <laughs> in the middle of class and that kind of thing with anxiety and the reaction from family is always, well, you just don't want to go to school. You're faking sick. Um, So I was sure that I was faking sick (laughs) as I got older and realized that maybe I did need to see a therapist or a psychiatrist who could prescribe me something. I have gotten a little better at coping with that, but even now, And I think this is kind of a universal problem for people who are on psychoactive drugs. It's it's kind of a, well, I feel better, so maybe I don't really need my medications or talking about your problems in therapy and kind of underselling them or thinking that maybe they're really not a big deal, even though they're really causing you some some pain. So I don't I don't know that it's something that people ever really get over. Um, especially with chronic illness, but it is something that you can kind of push back against. And unfortunately, a lot of that pushing back kind of buys into the 
biological model of medicine where if there's a, a medication you can take, then it's valid, um, which can also be really invalidating to people with chronic illnesses. But um, I guess it's kind of a vicious circle in that way. Yeah. So at UNC, you're also involved with the Hive Lab. Could you explain for the listener what the goal of the lab is and what you do within it? Yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, HIVE stands for Health and Humanities, an interdisciplinary venue for exploration. And it's a really great group. It's housed in the English department, but a lot of our events kind of pull from different departments across UNC and sometimes even from different universities. I know recently we've had Health Humanities Grand Rounds lectures from a professor in the med school, a professor in sociology, a professor of psychiatry at Duke. So it really is very varied. I'm lucky enough to be a research assistant in the Hive Lab now. So a lot of my work is putting together those grand rounds. I also put together a news digest and send out reminders about events that we have going on, which if you are interested in getting on either of those lists, you can email me at m-a-s-w-a-r-t-z at email.unc.edu and I can add you to the lists. There's a lot of great stuff already going on and we have big plans for this semester too. As a master's student in the literature, medicine, and culture program, what drew you to this degree? It's again a little non-standard. So I majored in English as an undergrad, but also had a minor in society and health. So I guess I've kind of always had that interdisciplinary interest. A lot of my family works in healthcare, um, and I grew up in the Mississippi Delta. So I was always really interested in kind of social disparities. And then I, I got to undergrad and I thought for a while I wanted to do something in medicine and that didn't quite fit. And so I thought maybe sociology or anthropology, but that felt like I was missing something kind of human. And then I found English and realized that I could tackle a lot of the questions I was interested in through literature. And that was kind of cemented in my junior year of undergrad when I I wrote on this kind of obscure 19th century novel that was it was all about bodies. Um, and I absolutely loved it. I found UNC's program and it's really been a great fit. I think I've been able to take English classes, but I've also taken anthropology classes. And like I mentioned, the library science class and mm-hmm. a, a class in the med school. So it's really been super varied, which is what I wanted. Um, and I think that's really unique in grad school because so many master's and PhD programs are really about kind of honing in your focus on one niche. And what I love about this is that I've been able to still pull from a lot of disciplines. Are you willing to talk a little more about the research that you've been doing? Yeah. So like I said, my interests are really, really far ranging, but my capstone project, kind of my alternative to a master's thesis Mm -hmm. is about civil war nursing. So I'm interested in kind of the deployment of the rhetoric of domesticity by these white women who performed nursing labor during the Civil War and how that kind of cemented hierarchies in the medical profession, legitimizing nursing by relying on ideals of hegemonic femininity, kind of placed nurses irreparably below male physicians, but also kind of placed white women nurses above women of color, men of color, and 
really how those disparities persist today, I think is really interesting. We're seeing it especially as as our population ages and a lot of nursing care kind of devolves to a home setting, women of color are disproportionately represented in that kind of labor and also kind of grotesquely underpaid. Mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in, in the rhetoric of it, but also about kind of the historical persistence. That's fascinating. It's so cool to hear the kind of work that is being done, like reaching across, as you said, interdisciplinary boundaries. I was just going to say it's been interesting because um, I've taken lots of history, but I would not call myself a historian. So I've really Mm -hmm. been working with texts and kind of modes of research and writing that aren't native to me, but it's been a cool learning experience. So I guess to close with What is your message to people and healthcare providers specifically who might have difficulty fully understanding invisible suffering, like what you felt with migraines? I think what I've been thinking about recently is maybe you don't need to understand kind of the the performance of empathy or sympathy is maybe enough, kind of accepting that patients do have a certain authority over their own bodies, at least in terms of innate knowledge. I think there's this idea that all the training that doctors receive makes them kind of unimpeachable authorities when it comes to bodies. But really, there are so many qualitative things that they can never know about one person's experience. So I think for for healthcare workers, as well as just people in general, I think the thing to do is just to listen and to believe and to care. Thank you so much for coming to talk with me. This has been wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for listening. You can find Megan's personal narrative and the rest of the Health Humanities Journal's fall 2020 issue on our website, linked in the show notes, or go to hhj.web.unc.edu. The music you're hearing now and at the top is from Andy G. Cohen. Thanks again to Megan for coming to talk with me, and be sure to watch for our next episode to hear more from the authors of the Health Humanities Journal of UNC Chapel Hill.